Please take your Bibles and open to James chapter 1. As you're turning there, I was just contemplating the words of that last great hymn, Great is Thy And I was reminded of this other significant event that's going on today, and that's Pastor Graf is receiving his Doctor of Ministry degree. And I talked to him last night, and, and if you know him at all, I know most of you do, he's just a little bit of an emotion. And ju just talking to him on the phone, he's just about at the stage of melting down even before today. But uh, what you may not know is all of the reason behind that. And uh, Northland started here in uh, the year 2002. So we're 21 years old as a church. And in the year 2002, our family moved to Grand Rapids and we became a part of the church. And my son, Peter, then was just entering high school. And so he spent four years here. And then he ended up going to California to the Master's College and Master's Seminary. And uh, he must have liked school for a while because he was there for 11 years. And uh, on, upon completing his, his uh seminary training there, he was hired at Shepherd Seminary in North Carolina. And uh, Julie and I then went to this uh, church at the seminary the first year he was out there. And the next year, I told Pastor Graff that that was pretty good, you should go. So he went and he ran into some of his old instructors from, from past years during his Bible college days. And they, at that point, they were just starting this doctoral program. And so he entered the program there. And now, three years later, he's getting the degree. So, I mean, talk about God and his faithfulness and how he works out all these details. And then add to that today, at the graduation ceremony, my son Peter is going to hood him, which means kind of put that fancy thing around his neck during graduation. And so really a special time how God works all those details out. So you can understand why he might be a little emotional there. <laughs> For today, we are going to look at James chapter 1, uh, verses 2 through 12. And this is really good how the Lord has worked this out because Rodney referred to this in... Uh, the CE hour, and really, um, James confuses a lot of people in their reading of it, but it's really, really quite simple, but if you've been confused, you're in good company because Charles Spurgeon was confused, and uh, if you read much about Spurgeon, he would almost just have uh, been just as happy if James wasn't even in the canon of Scripture because he really struggled with it, but the whole book is about testing of your faith and determining is this true faith or false faith. And if you just remember that as you're reading James, I mean, it's very, very clear as you read through. So I'm going to uh, read the, those uh, 11 verses to get us started this morning, and then we'll, we'll learn what the Lord has for us here through James. It says in Scripture here, starting at verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, 
And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let a brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now that last verse really is the main point of the whole passage here. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Trials then produce blessing. Trials produce blessing. Having been tried, ultimately we receive the crown of life then and are blessed people. So the question is then, how do you turn trouble or suffering into blessing? And that's really the question before us this morning, and we're going to talk in detail about that and see what the scripture, especially this passage in James, teaches us about suffering. So uh, perhaps you uh, came this morning hoping to be encouraged, and you're thinking, oh no, we're going to talk about suffering and trials. That sounds like a real great topic, but I promise you, God does intend it for our good, and it will be an encouragement to you as you understand why trials come and even more importantly how we are to deal with them how we're to think about them when they do come so i've read uh, one of the surest tests for a true diamond is the water test and i'm certainly not an expert in jewels um, you can ask julie later it, it was really just an act of god that i was able to give her a ring forget about the quality of the diamond when we got married and she was probably just glad to get one regardless of what it was but uh, when we look at a true diamond there is something called the water test and there are uh, man-made stones that look to the untrained eye just like a real diamond but I read that if you put both of those underwater the true diamond continues to sparkle underwater, whereas the false diamond loses all of its luster and, and uh, sparkle, and it looks just like a rock sitting underwater. So the water test reveals the true versus the false. It reveals the true versus the false, and uh, when you place one alongside the other, it becomes very obvious immediately and so that really is what James is talking about here in this passage. Uh, people might be very confident in their faith on the surface, but they find that when their faith goes under the water of affliction and suffering, the sparkle is gone. It proves to be false faith. By the way, before I go on here, young ladies, when you go out to eat at the fancy restaurant with the man of your dreams, and he 
brings out the diamond, make sure you have a glass of water handy. Just to determine how serious he really is and if he's the real deal. So James, really throughout the whole book, remember as we go through this, is concerned with the genuineness of your faith. And he's concerned with, as verse 3 says, with the testing of your faith. And this testing will reveal the strength of your weakness or the weakness of your faith. Now, I don't need to tell any of you that life is filled with these tests and suffering. We all know that, right? We don't live very many days without some tests and suffering coming our way. Some of you have suffered tremendously in the past. Some of you are suffering right now. And I can promise you that everyone here will suffer in the future. But this reality should not be discouraging. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, God in his sovereignty sends suffering our way to accomplish some very specific purposes in our lives and that's what we'll be learning about this morning. <clears throat> There's one quick example here that many of you are familiar with, and that is the reality that the best of life is marriage. God has designed it. It's called in Scripture the grace of life, and even in marriage, which is the best of life, the fulfillment of life, and it's the best gift that God has given for earthly happiness, we find that uh, we, and we find in marriage fulfillment and completion and love and all the riches of life. But even Paul, regarding marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, 28, says there is trouble. And Paul calls it trouble in the flesh or worldly troubles. And the reason he does that is because there's no trouble that's as painful as that which occurs in your family. You all know that, right? The closer people are to you, a spouse, a child, a grandchild, a relative, father, mother, there's more pain inflicted on you in their sorrow, right? Just because you love them, you're close to them. And so that's uh, a reality of life, and really it continues through our lives with those we love, even to the point of their death. Jesus also understood human trouble. He suffered in all points as we are, Scripture tells us, yet without sin. Uh, you don't read very far in the Gospels where you read that he groaned and he wept. He cried over the death of Lazarus, over the weeping of Lazarus' family. He sorrowed over the city of Jerusalem. His soul was in anguish many, many times. He's called the man of sorrows, right? So he knew about trouble and trials and suffering. In fact, Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, so it just goes with life here, and we need to expect it. We need to expect these trials and suffering to come our way. Uh, we know that this trouble from many sources will be a reality of life, trouble from family, friends, on the job, in school. People will criticize you, persecution, physical illness, disease, it just goes on and on until the point of death, right? Sometimes it, feel, it seems like our lives are just filled with trouble, but James tells us here that this trouble is a test of your faith, and in verse 12 it says you need to persevere through this test, then you'll be blessed and you'll receive a crown of life. Now, in verse 2, 
in James 1, James also understands that trouble comes in many forms. He says, Consider all my all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And this word, various kinds here, means that these are many colored kinds of trouble. It's going to come in all shapes and sizes. He is not emphasizing here a number, but a diversity. And we've already noted that this morning. It's going to come in all kinds of ways, relationships, monetary things, physical things. Just all kinds of troubles are coming our way. Now, during the time this was written, these Christians were being persecuted. Some of them were not being paid for the work they did. There were hostilities against them by the rich, as it says over in chapter 5. And James's purpose here is not to define all the suffering specifically, but more importantly in this passage is how we deal with it when it comes. So don't expect that it's not coming. Know that it is coming. The important thing for us as Christians is, okay, it's going to come. How do we deal with it? Now, as James gets started in this discussion, he doesn't even distinguish between the internal and external trouble. It comes in both forms. Some of it is outside of us, but some of us is inside of us. And really, I think our most profound trouble has nothing to do with anybody else. It has to do with us. It has to do with what's going on inside of us. Things like personal disappointment, personal unfulfillment, unrequited love, emotions that never seem to be settled, fears and anxieties and worries and cares and frustrations and misunderstandings and dreams never realized and unmet expectations and on and on and on and you can fill in the rest, right? We've all been there. These are the things that, that truly uh, cause us trials and suffering in our lives. The, the reality is that's just life. It happens, right? It happens. Now James says how we react to that verse, or the trouble, the trouble that comes our way in verse 3 is a test, and it's a test of our faith. In the end, how you respond to all the difficulties of life is a test of your faith, and it shows up where you are on the faith meter, as it were. Weak or strong? Where, where are you going to be on the faith meter? Is it weak or strong? And these trials are going to reveal that to you. They're going to demonstrate your faith, and ideally you're going to go through that test and come out in verse 12 where you'll come out blessed because you persevered, you endured. You went through the trial, you'll be blessed, you'll receive the crown of life, and that's where God wants the whole thing to end with blessing and eternal reward. The crown of life simply speaks to this reward that's awaiting us. So we need to remember that uh, these tests, the, the purpose for these trials is that so we will know the strength or weakness of our faith, and as we endure... Through the trial, will be blessed in this life and rewarded in the next. Now, here's something very important to note here. This whole thing we're talking about is not for God. God already knows the state of your faith. God in his sovereignty knows everything, right? None of us have fooled God with the state of our faith. So these trials and suffering that come our way are for us. 
so we know how strong our faith is. So, how do we endure these trials then and, and come out in verse 12 as I've described? How can we count it all joy going through it? And really, these verses in James, they unfold five things that are required for us to come out in verse 12 where we want to arrive. And this is really a recipe for perseverance here. It's for a recipe for handling our trials. And these five things are something you'll want to remember. And then you can call them to mind as these trials and suffering come and they will, make, they will help you process this in a biblical way so you end up being blessed through the trial. Okay? So the first thing we need to do is cultivate the, in our minds the idea of a joyous attitude in the midst of trials. And that's where James begins in verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. My brethren here indicates he's talking to believers, Christians, and uh, those are also those who are referred to at verse 12. Those are those who love God, people who know him. And James uh, really likes to use that term throughout here, and obviously he's identifying his audience as believers. <clears throat> By the way, there's the idea here that somehow when you become a Christian, you ought to be free from trouble, and that is just not true. We might as well just dismiss that right now. The idea that somehow when you become a Christian, if your faith is strong enough, you won't have any difficulties, you won't have any failures, you'll be swept on to unmeasured success and fulfillment and health and wealth and on and on and on. It is simply not true. In fact, uh, just the opposite is true. You know, you will have more trials and more suffering as a believer than if you had never put your faith in Christ. So, the response here to consider, first of all, is considering these trials as all joy. And this indicates the need for you to make a conscious commitment. Meaning, at the point when you begin to enter a trial, you need to deal with it as joy. Now, that on the surface seems like an impossibility. Trials and suffering are not pleasant. Uh, how, how can I possibly be happy going through this? Well, happiness is different than joy. And there's another important piece of this that will help us understand it better. And that is the word uh, that begins the, the first part of verse 2, Count it all joy or consider it all joy. And that's a very important word choice because that means to really think about what's happening here, to really process this mentally. Think about what's happening. You have a trial that's upon you. You need to process what's happening. You need to begin not only to understand what is going on, but the effect that it's going to have on you. So we're thinking about its implications. We're thinking about what ultimately will happen in the end. In fact, if we went back and understood the original Greek here, it's conveying to us the idea of thinking forward. So you're thinking 
past the trial that you're in, you're thinking ahead to the ultimate benefit of it. So you're getting out of the trauma of the moment because there's no joy in immediate pain, right? We all know that. But we're thinking about what is God going to accomplish through sufferings and trials, and we already know in verse 12 what it is, right? That we're going to be blessed through this. And we'll talk in a moment what that blessing is. Here's Here's a piece of this that you need to understand and remember always, and that is that everything in the Christian life is all about thinking rightly. Everything that you deal with is about thinking rightly. In other words, thinking biblically. Whatever the issue is, if you're thinking rightly, you'll make the right decision, you'll do the right thing. Conversely, when we make wrong decisions, when we make poor decisions, when we do the wrong thing, when we look back and say, ah, why did I do that? It all starts with wrong thinking, unbiblical thinking. So let's make the choice right now that we need to think biblically, right? We need to be thinking rightly all the time. If you need motivation to be reading Scripture daily, there it is. How are you going to think biblically if you don't know what the Scriptures say? You know, this is very practical stuff. We need to be thinking rightly. We live in a world that is truly in chaos because they aren't thinking rightly. No one is. But we're different as Christians. We can be thinking rightly because we have God's Word. So whenever you encounter all these multiple different kinds of trials in life, whenever that happens, begin to think forward. Don't get stuck in the moment of the trial. Whenever you encounter these trials, think forward to the joyous reality that is beyond. And a very uh, applicable example here would be think about the case of a death or the case of a serious illness instead of get all wrapped up in the sadness of the immediate experience think forward think forward to what's going to come out of this think to about what god is producing through whatever you're going through think about the words of the apostle paul who could think beyond his own pain so much that he could say When I'm suffering, I'm receiving the comfort of God in my suffering so that having learned that, I'll be able to comfort you in your suffering. So often we're we're going through our suffering and pain and we're we're just focused on, oh, this hurts so much, right? We're just paralyzed by where we are. Don't get stuck there. Think beyond what is God accomplishing, what does he want to do? By the way, think for a moment about those who are not Christians Suffering and pain is truly a very sad time for them. There's no forward. If you're not a Christian, there's no God to move you forward. There's no hope of eternal life. There's no sovereign one unfolding his purposes in your life. There's no hope, no confidence. There's no way to believe that somehow this is going to take you to a higher level of spiritual life, a greater blessedness, an eternal reward. There's just nothing there. No wonder people can't get beyond the pain, right? I mean, there's just nothing there for those who aren't believers. That's why people who have no hope sorrow so profoundly. But we do not sorrow like people who have no hope because we think forward about everything. 
No matter what suffering comes into our lives, no matter what difficulty comes into our lives, for the moment we don't like it, and we've read that in Hebrews chapter 12, when the Lord chastens us for the moment, it is grievous, right? But then it says in verse 11 of Hebrews 12, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyous but sorrowful, and all if you do is look at the moment, that's where it ends. But... It goes on and says, yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So what God wants to do in your life is produce righteousness, and this righteousness is the most glorious thing you can ever possess and the highest and most wonderful thing to enjoy. If you look forward, you'll see the righteousness If you get stuck in your pain and you can't get your eyes off of that, it seems only to be sorrowful. So these trials come, they engulf us, they drown us, but there's no way out but through them, and we need to be looking at the other side. By the way, many of you are familiar with Psalm 23, maybe the most famous of Psalms, right? And verse 4 says, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Do you notice that? It says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't get to go around it. I, I don't get to take a shortcut through this trial that's the valley of the shadow of death. I heard a testimony one time by a guy from the south, and he he saw this in Psalm 23, and he says, God doesn't say he's going to pick me up on one side and put me down on the other side. He's going to take me snack dab through it. And we need to remember that God is going to take us through the trial, but we don't get consumed with looking at the pain around us. You know, we see our way through knowing that God is going to do good things. So James says, consider it all joy because you're looking ahead to what God is doing. Our Lord is a great example of this for us, and that's why we can be so confident of the outcome here. Hebrews 12 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then listen to what the next part says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Christ was in this situation, right, in the garden, and he looked at what was coming, the sin-bearing, and you remember what he said there in his prayer to the Father, let this cup pass from me, right? He did, this was a trial. This was suffering facing him in the face, I don't think I can endure this. And then hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this sorrow would be beyond anything we could ever expect humanly to experience. His agony was so great in the garden, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. The agony was so severe and the mental anguish in his body. And so he endured the agony of the cross. And yet, it was for the joy set before him that he endured it. He was looking through it, right? He was looking at the outcome. It wasn't, it wasn't, there was nothing joyful about the cross. There was nothing joyful about the suffering. But what he accomplished there 
the most joyous thing ever, right? Accomplishing the plan of redemption. Now, one more thing here. James doesn't just say, I want you to have a little bit of joy in this. He says, count it all joy. What James means here is really very simple. Have a settled, definitive, decisive conviction to face trials as a source of pure joy, of complete joy, of comprehensive joy, total joy, joy of one who counts it a privilege to suffer because you know it's going to bring about blessing and eternal glory. In other words, think rightly about what you're going through, right? Think rightly about what you're going through. So the first thing then is this joyous attitude. The second thing the passage teaches us is not only does perseverance through trials require a joyous attitude, but an understanding mind. Look in verse 3 where it says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The verse talks here about knowing and if the key word in verse 2 is joy, then the key word in verse 3 here is knowing by personal experience. Personal knowledge gives us the information needed to evaluate our trials so we can look forward to joy. And the question here is, what do you need to know? What do you really need to know as you're going through a trial here? And there are a number of things that you need to know to look forward to that joy. And if you don't know them, what we're talking about this morning will be very difficult, probably impossible. James kind of summarizes in verse 3, he says, you need to know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That's part of what you need to know. God has a purpose here, and it's to make you stronger. It's produced staying power, and it means that you get under and remain under a pressure, like a pressure cooker, and it produces endurance in you. And it produces a tenacity of spirit that holds up under pressure. There are a number of factors here that you need to know to make this all work as you're going through a trial. You need to know that God is doing a work in your life. And the work that he's doing is to develop your spiritual strength so you'll be more useful and more blessed and receive even a greater eternal reward. This test is producing, it's achieving, it's accomplishing. You need to know that as you go through a trial, God has sent it. Rodney mentioned that earlier this morning, right? We often don't think about that. We, we know that God provides good things. You know God provides all things. And when God sends a trial or suffering into your life, it's God who has sent it. Let, let's not even dance around with, with other words and thoughts. You know, don't, don't even say God has allowed it, because that kind of removes him a half a step. He has sent it directly. I need to know that God is orchestrating this in my life because it is for my good and for his glory. Remember 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul went to God in his prayers and three times he said, Lord, take this trial away, take this trial away, take this trial away. And God said, 
No, I'm not going to take the trial away. I'm going to give you the grace to endure it because I want to accomplish something in your life. It's important for us to know that God wants to do the same things in our lives and we need to know that he's bringing this about. You need to know that things don't just happen helter-skelter in your life, right? They don't happen at random. They don't happen in our lives by luck. Whatever's happened, it isn't just a bad day. There is a sovereign God working in the life of every believer purposely to achieve his ends. You need to remember that every day when you're going through these trials. Notice, these are not our ends. He's accomplishing his ends. Oh, it'd be so much more comfortable in the moment if it was our ends, wouldn't it? I mean, we could could get on board with that. Sometimes we aren't so happy about him accomplishing his ends, especially if we don't understand that about God, then we can have a very difficult time. But the reality here is that God is absolutely sovereign. He's in control of everything. He's working out every detail of your life each day to make you more like Christ. Scripture says that about God, and he's unchangeable. He doesn't need to change. He never has. And we need to know who this God is. We need to have a sound theology realizing that God's character is fixed and established and he is sovereign in all these things and there's no power that can thwart his efforts. As far as this test, we need to know, or this suffering, we need to know that it's been designed by God to make me strong to make me into who he wants me to be, to hold me up under the pressure, and to make me a blessing and a strength to other people who may be suffering similar things. I need to know that God has a plan, and I need to know God is powerful enough to work that plan, and he's going to bring it out to pass, all to pass, and he's wise enough that he knows the right plan. My plan, your plan, could never hold up to what God's perfect plan is for us. So one, at least one more thing we need to realize about God working this plan is that he'll never put you in a position where it's just too much for you to handle. You remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? No temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation make a way of escape also that you'll be able to bear it. He is sovereign in working out the plan. It's the right plan, and he'll never put us through something that he doesn't give us the grace to endure. All of a sudden, our trials and our suffering take on a whole different light, don't they? They look entirely differently as we understand what James is saying here. So it's that kind of confidence that anchors us in God. So we need to know that we aren't just a piece of driftwood floating around in this life. We're not just a stick waiting to go over the waterfall and see what happens. But there's a living, sovereign, eternal God in control of every single detail of my life. God is ultimately involved in everything And if I don't know that, I'm not going to see suffering and trials as I should. By the way, I'll take this just a step further, just so you know, you should never blame Satan for your trials. Never. 
simply because it isn't Satan who puts you through the trials. It is God who will allow Satan to bring a trial against you for his own holy ends and purposes, but Satan is the servant of God. He can't touch me any more than he could touch Job if God hadn't allowed it. And in Job's case, God allowed it to reveal Job's faith through this test, and Job's faith never wavered. If you remember what Job said, he said, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Job passed the test, right? And he was blessed in the end. <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh. And if you remember what he said, he said, there was, a there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. So there was given to Paul literally a rod or a shaft or a spear driven through him. It was so painful for him. But it was a messenger from Satan, but it was given to him by whom? By God. It was given to him by God, even though a messenger of Satan. And that's why he went to God and he asked God to remove it. And God said, no, I want this messenger of Satan piercing your otherwise proud flesh so you'll be humbled. He, he goes on and he says, because I had so many visions and seen so many wonderful things, he would be proud if God didn't use this messenger from Satan to pierce his otherwise proud flesh and humble him. So Paul saw such a painful thing as being a, really a good gift from God. So you need to know that. You need to know that even Satan is a servant of God, so when trials come, we need to be attributed them to God. God has sent them for our good. Verse 3 goes on and says, the trial produces endurance. So here's we're told about the purpose for our trial, the purpose being producing endurance in us. We need to know that God has this plan and he has the power to work the plan in our lives. He has the wisdom to design the right plan and the compassion and grace never to put you through something that you can't endure. And as you go through something and develop perseverance, you have a greater strength for the next trial and greater endurance and little by little, step by step, God is producing greater and greater strength for your own blessing and usefulness and for his glory. So you must look past the suffering, past the sorrow, past the disappointment, the unfulfilled dreams, the illnesses, the death, the loss, the separation, and the result is this joyful attitude and this understanding mind there's a third thing that James mentions in verse 4. He says in verse 4, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may perfect, be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The third thing that's produced here that's essential really for us to uh, see trials and suffering as they really are is a submissive will. It says, let this endurance or steadfastness have its perfect result. We can view this as, let it happen, submit to it. Don't fight what God is doing here. Don't resist it. Let the work of God take place. Embrace it. Come to terms with it as Paul did. Paul said, I rejoice and I will rejoice no matter what the suffering, no matter what the pain. 
Simply put, you should never be reluctant to let God do his perfecting work. We should never have the attitude where we would say to God, you know, God, what I really want out of this whole Christian life business is just a trouble-free life. That should never be our attitude because then God cannot make us into who he wants us to be. You might think about it this way, how should we pray? I think too often we, we quickly gloss over the question and we end up praying for a trouble-free life and maybe even for trials to be removed. Think about this, we should all pray more like this, Lord, work your work in my heart. Don't give me more than I can endure. Show me grace and compassion. You know my weakness and frailties. I want to see your loving kindness, but I want you to do your work. I want you to do your perfecting work. I want you to do whatever it takes in me to make me what you want me to be. Well, that's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? We, we're, we're really quick to ask for the Lord to take away, especially physical pain, right? Physical illness, Lord, take this from me. And we fail to realize God sent whatever it is. He wants to make us, well, verse 4, we don't want to miss what he wants to make us there, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We don't want to resist that. We don't want to fight against that. The idea is that this endurance is moving us toward perfection. It has a perfect result. Now that doesn't mean sinless perfection in this life. It just means maturity, spiritual maturity. You want to become a man fully restored or fully matured or a full-grown woman with adult faculties and capabilities and strengths. You want to be a strong, mature woman of faith. You want to be full-grown. This term is used of those who are full-grown, those who are mature, and that's what he's saying. You need to let God bring you to that maturity, and you're never going to get there without trouble, trouble and trials. You'll never get there without some suffering along the way. Do you get what, what the, the text is saying here? There is a road to maturity. At the end of the road is maturity completeness, all God wants you to be, on the road is suffering and trials. There are no shortcuts. You need to go through suffering and trials to be who God wants you to be. Faith, then, is being tested to bring us to a greater dependence on God, greater endurance as he processes us towards maturity perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's making us whole. Everything is there, nothing lacking, and we need to yield to that process to, to make sure that it happens. One thing to think about as we're going through suffering and trials, we should always be quick to ask the question, Lord, show me what it is you're accomplishing through what you're putting me through. Through what you're doing here, make me more like Christ. Through this, draw me to yourself. Are we quick to ask those things of God? Or are we so focused in the moment, it's just, get me out of this. Give me relief. 
If, if we are, we miss the whole point. God has sent these things for our good. I think Rodney may have mentioned it this morning. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How does he do all that for us? After you've suffered for a little while, right? After you've suffered for a little while. So we want to let God do his work. We want God to accomplish his purpose in our lives, and if we're going to do that, we have to be submissive to what God is doing. We have to have this understanding mind. We have to be cultivating this attitude of joy for what God is doing in our lives. Now, I know that uh, you are like I am in that you would prefer a life of ease, right? Nobody goes looking for trials and trouble. We like comfort. We, we seek only minimum trials. Sometimes as we're going through life and everything is good, we fall into a, really a trap of thinking maybe it'll always be this way, but it won't. Uh, Psalm 30, verse 6 the psalmist says, in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. In other words, when I was in the midst of my prosperity, I imagined that it would always be that way and nothing would shake me. Well, that's just not the way it is. People who never forecast trouble and promise themselves ease are really living in an unreal world. There was a Puritan writer by the name of Thomas Manton who wrote this. He said, God has only one son without sin, but he has none without suffering. None without suffering. I have uh, three adult sons, and I think all of them have said to me in recent years, Dad, you're different as a grandpa than you were as our dad when we were little. Well, I think what's going on here is as you get older, you pass through more trials, and they either harden you and make you bitter, or they teach you greater patience and greater endurance and greater spiritual strength. And I just pray to God that the latter is what they're seeing in me. Noble, you'll never know what you missed. Noble, Noble has no fear of me. He needs to talk to his older brothers and sisters. So, a joyous attitude, an understanding mind, and a submissive will. Number four is a believing heart, and that takes us to verses 5 through 8 in James 1. Verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, and we can stop right there for a moment and ask, what is wisdom? When we talk about wisdom, we're talking about a practical understanding of the issues of life. And wisdom, of course, is at a premium during trials, right? You want to know how to handle what's going on. When you read the Psalms and Proverbs, the only thing that ever really sorts out life is the wisdom of God, which you find in Proverbs and Psalms. What we want is a practical understanding of these issues of life so we can sort out what's going on and why it's going on. Now, to the Jews... 
This wisdom was very different from what the Greeks understood. To the Jews, wisdom was understanding life in view of God. In the midst of what was going on, it was to see it as God at work. That's what wisdom was. Wisdom is seeing God at work. The psalmist said, I have set the Lord always before me, therefore my heart is glad, my joy, my glory rejoices. It's hard to be depressed when you're viewing life always as involving God and his unfolding purposes. When you're going through a test and you feel weak and you desire strength and resources and understanding and you're trying to hold on, where do you go for wisdom? Well, you could look to the world to try to find wisdom, but that would be a big mistake. There's a, a great statement that you need to remember here, and it's found in Job 28.12, where he says simply, where can wisdom be found? This is near the end of the book of Job, after he's gone all through everything he's gone through. He's had bad counsel, he's had all his possessions taken, and he goes on and he says, Where is the place of understanding? Man doesn't know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. You want wisdom? Don't look in this world. It's not available in the land of the living. It's not in this world. It's not here. You'll never sort out the issues of life by seeking to understand it on a human level. In verse 23 of that same chapter, it says, God understands its way and he knows its place. And then a few verses later in verse 28, he says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. You don't even enter into the realm of wisdom until you come to God, and that's where you're going to find wisdom. It's not in this world You'll never be able to sort out the issues of life by looking for human solutions. Many of you know Proverbs 3.5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He'll make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Now there's the wisdom for every situation. There's wisdom to be grasped in every trial of life. However, it's not available from any human source, right? It's only available from God. You don't need to flip over there, but if you looked over at James 3.17, he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere, Understand this, real wisdom is not in the land of the living. It's not available on earth. It simply isn't here. It's not human. It comes down from above. It is pure wisdom. It's peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, without hypocrisy. Now, if you were to back up just a couple verses, James 3.15, he says anything other than this wisdom from above is earthly, natural, unspiritual, demonic. When you're looking for wisdom, you have two choices. It's either from above and from God, or it's from this world and it's demonic. Whoa. Those are pretty harsh terms, aren't they? Two choices. Where are you going to go when you need wisdom to deal with the issues of this life? Well, as a believer, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? We need to be 
seeking the wisdom from above, when you're trying to sort out what's going on in the struggles in your life, you're going to be needing God's wisdom and you can only get that from God, that which comes from above. So, back in James chapter 1, we have these trials coming at us and God, in his wonderful purposes really is testing us and strengthening us and refining us and really finding out whether we're attached to earthly things, finding out whether we're heavenly minded, finding out what we really love. And God is going to be bringing all these things into your life and through them strengthening you. And then in verse 4, he's using these to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so you need wisdom. It says in verse 5 then, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now we need to understand this is a command here. If you, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. This isn't a suggestion. It's a command. It's not optional. It's mandatory. In those times when you can't sort out the issues of life, you ask God, and this I think is really one of the primary reasons God brings these trials into our lives in order to, get this now, elevate our dependence on him. We, we like thinking we're pretty independent people, don't we? We aren't. We, we need to be depending on God. That's where he wants us to be. Just when you think you've got life all figured out, you've got it all wired, you're the master of your own fate, everything is going great, your kids are all doing what you want them to be doing, and you're, you're happy in your marriage relationship and in your goals and your achievements and your lifestyle and you like it all the way it is. And that's the very kind of dependence, the very kind of prosperity about which God warned Israel when they went into the promised land and they had it very good that they would forget him and then he would have to send reminders. And doesn't God do the same thing for us? Life is just going so good and we forget God. We don't need God anymore. So he sends trials and suffering into our lives, just like the children of Israel, to remind us and put us in a position where no human resources can solve our problems, right? There's, there's no human way out of this. And then we turn to God. So it says in verse 5, If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And you might say at this point, well, okay, I need wisdom in the situation I am. What am I going to have to do to get that out of God? Do I have to sort of beat on heaven's door? But we just look at the rest of the verse, and it says, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously. The idea here is that God gives this wisdom to all men liberally, unconditionally, without bargaining, generously, freely. He just pours it out. He holds nothing back. Absolutely nothing. Isn't that good? God isn't just going to give us a little bit here. Proverbs 2.6 says, The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. 
The idea here, he has piles and piles of wisdom, and he loves nothing more than to dispense it to those of his children who will ask. How often do we forget to ask, right? This is talking about prayer here, asking God. It's talking about the pursuit of the knowledge of God in the Scripture. There's another thing about this. He gives to all men generously and without reproach. Uh, This is one place where I I really kind of love the old King James English in that version where it says, He upbraideth not. Don't use that word every day, do you? Abradeth? What are we talking about there? Well, let me tell you what that means by way of an example here. Parents, your kids come and they ask for something, but kids being what they are, who they are, they haven't really been all that obedient. And you know that they really don't deserve what they're asking for, but you want to give your kids good things, and it's really something they need So you give them a little bit of a speech. You say, well, I'm going to give this to you, but you really don't deserve it. And I want your behavior to improve greatly here. And that's kind of of a condition of why I'm giving you this good thing. So, you know, kind of buck up here. You're going to get it, but I know what you're really like, and you're really not deserving of this. That is giving with reproach. That that is upbraiding, to use the old King James English, your kids. You are reprimanding them along with the gift that you're giving to them. Aren't you glad you don't get that when you go to God? There's no reproach, no reprimand included when God gives wisdom. He gives sincerely, He gives without hesitation. He gives without mental reservation. He holds nothing back. He doesn't begrudge. He doesn't complain like we do as parents. He doesn't say, you know, this is getting a little much. All I ever do is bail you out. Do you want more wisdom now? No, none of that ever comes from God. His commitment is to supply all the wisdom that his people need to deal with the issues of life and to give it generously and to the fullest and never at any point with reproach. We never hear that speech from our Heavenly Father. You're not worthy of this. You're undeserving. He gives it, and He gives it to all men generously, all men being here, those who are His. Without reproach, it's given to Him. I mean, what a great thing, right? All this wisdom at our disposal, and all we have to do is ask for it. So if you're going through a trial and you're trying to sort it out, you go to God's word, you go to the Lord in prayer, and you ask him for wisdom, and wisdom is poured out to you without reservation, without reproach. Psalm 81.10 is a great verse. It says, I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Don't you like that? You see what God is saying there? He doesn't say, here's a stale morsel, you undeserving wretch. He says, open wide your mouth, as wide as you can do, and I'm going to dump a load in there. God desires to give us all the wisdom we need. So, 
in verse 5, James has described the willing father, and then he turns to the waiting child in verse 6 and describes the kind of faith that is required here. <clears throat> if there's a lack of wisdom in your life and you can't sort out the issues that you're dealing with, if you can't handle all that, it's not the fault of the father. There's no shortness in his supply. It's the faith of the child that's the issue. And that's what he's dealing with in verse 6. In verse 6, he says, uh, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Hebrews 11.6 says, Anybody who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So you've got to believe that God is a saving, redeeming, gracious, and rewarding God. And there's no place here for insincere praying, for doubt in praying. He says the true believer in the trial will cast himself on God's resources, believing that God will supply. And then he further says, without any doubting, without any wavering, without disputing, without debating. You're not doubting God's power here. You're not doubting God's supply. You must have the true faith, the unwavering faith. You believe God is your Savior, your Father, your Sovereign. He's loving. He's going to meet your needs. <clears throat> so we believe all that. Christians believe all that. Never doubting that God will supply all you need. But if you doubt, in verse 6, you waver. The verse says, you're like the surf or the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. The question is, well, what's this talking about now? And I think it's fairly obvious. You've all seen the surf, if you've been to the ocean, or if you haven't, the waves on the lake will tell you the same story. They just go back and forth with the wind, right? They're in and out, back and forth, all day long. And if you notice, it really doesn't get anywhere, right? It just goes back and forth, just in and out, back and forth. It's like halting between two opinions. The idea here is that this is no place to be sitting on the fence. This is the person who is doubting here, who has no real faith in God. This is the person who is either an unbeliever or a weak, doubting Christian acting like an unbeliever. Verse 7 says, That man, let him not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. God is not bound here to answer doubters. If you're going to debate God, if you're going to doubt God's supply or provision or his sovereignty when the testing and the trials come, and you go to God, but you go faithlessly to God, don't expect to receive any wisdom because verse 8 says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Double-minded, it literally means two-souled. S-O-U-L-E-D. A two-souled person, or a two-minded, or maybe this will help, a soul divided between God and the world. Oh, you want a foot in each place, right? A foot with God, a foot in the world. You don't really believe all of God's word. Perhaps there are parts you don't like. This is the undecided person. 
A person who knows there's a God, believes in God, but hasn't made a commitment. He's unstable, not in some of his ways, but what? All of his ways. Unstable in all of his ways, which indicates a spiritual condition generally outside of the kingdom. What a sad commentary on that person. This person has no true rest, no true loyalty to the Lord. His whole life is vacillating, waffling. He's unsettled. So, let's go back here and think very carefully about this. If you're going through the trials of life and you've not made a commitment to God by putting your trust and faith in Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, if your faith is not that saving faith that embraces all that God is and all that God promises, and you're struggling in the midst of trials and your doubt and your wavering and your restlessness, don't expect God to deliver to you the necessary wisdom to sort all this out. You just aren't in a position to receive it. The wisdom that is from above comes only to those who are God's children. By the way, if you are a, a confused believer, if you're a weak believer, you're stumbling and bumbling about in some pattern of sin, and you're trying to reach out in the midst of a trial for wisdom without dealing with that sin first, don't expect God to honor that double-mindedness and that hypocrisy. So if we're going to receive wisdom from God, we need to ask. We ask in faith. We have a joyful attitude, an understanding mind, a submissive will, a believing heart. And finally, the fifth part of this discussion is a humble spirit. And this is a really essential thing. And it's one of the things God is doing in your suffering, and that is he's humbling you, and that's verses 9 to 11. It's interesting how these verses show up here. And if you're reading casually through this, you might think, well, these verses are kind of unrelated to suffering. They're just dropped in here. But that's not the case at all. Because verse 12 goes back to the suffering, so we know that they are within that context. The verses say, Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, let the rich man glory in his humiliation because like flower and grass he will pass away. And then he goes on to describe how winds dry up grass and flowers and it's just like earthly riches. But the common denominator here in verse 9 is humility in the case of the lowly man and humiliation in the case of the rich man. So this discussion includes another command here and the command is in verse 9. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This is the brother, some other versions say, of low degree, the lowly brother. And this is a poor person, low on the economic scale, at the bottom of the prestige chart. And understand that the rich in these days were guilty of many things against the poor people. These dispersed Jews were very poor. They couldn't find their way into the Jewish community because they had believed in Christ and they were outcasts. The Gentiles didn't want anything to do with them either because they belonged to Christ and they had nothing to do with the Gentile paganism. So here are these Jewish Christians with really no home. And he says to these poor people, you need to glory 
or to boast. And he's talking here about joy or boasting of a legitimate pride. He's saying here, you may have nothing in the world, nothing at all, but that's okay. Let the brother of those humble circumstances rejoice in his high position. He may have nothing in the world, but he has a high position with God. He may be the filth, or as Paul said, the off-scouring of the world, but he can rejoice because his spiritual status is one of exaltation. Let him rejoice in that. Literally, it says, in that he is exalted. And we could put it in parenthesis here, in that in Christ he is exalted. That's the idea. He may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he drinks of the water of life. He may be poor, but he has true riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he is received by God. And so all this he accepts. He doesn't need anything more because his position before God is enough for him. It's enough. So he says to the poor, accept all that humiliation because poverty is a short-lived trial. It's just for this life. And those who are poor and in Christ has the hope of eternal riches. In other words, don't look to draw your joy out of this world and you'll never be disappointed. If you're looking for your joy in the circumstances of life, you're never going to have true joy. The idea here is if you attach joy to any earthly possessions, economic status, you're going to miss the whole point. Accept where you are. It's good for you. It keeps your focus where it ought to be. And it makes the spiritual realities and eternal riches all the more precious. Now the rich man shows up in the next verse. And he's got a different problem. Verse 10 says, Let the rich man rejoice in his humiliation. Now, most people, most rich people, are very concerned how they might lose their riches. It says, But let the rich brother rejoice when he's made low. Let the rich boast when the stock market crashes. Let him rejoice when he loses everything because he shouldn't have pride in his possessions anyway. He shouldn't have any hope in his position. Let him rejoice when he's humbled because humility is good for the spiritual life. So we have the poor people and the rich people coming together in the church and really the church breaks down all those differences and if you're in Christ, you are together and you have things in common, the most common thing you have in, in uh, well, the thing you have in common with those in the church is your oneness in Christ. And there is a certain humiliation in that because all the other things of life melt away and they really shouldn't have effect on us anyway. So the rich are blended together in common life with the poor and in the early church, the way that happened was the poor had literally nothing, and so they got some of what they needed from the rich. They were willing to share it. So they came to Christ, they belonged to the family of God, and there was this humiliation, especially for the rich, in associating with the poor. Well, the text says, let the rich rejoice in that, let the rich rejoice in whatever humiliates them 
let the poor rejoice in their humiliation. Really, let everybody rejoice in humiliation here. Humility is a good thing because it takes our eyes off of ourselves, off of what we think is our ability to take care of ourselves and helps us focus on God, who is truly the only one who can sustain us. The path here to spiritual maturity is right straight through the process of humiliation. We need to set aside everything of this world that can keep us from spiritual maturity. So the poor man can rejoice because his faith in Christ lifts him beyond his trials and he contemplates the glory of his position in Christ. The rich man can rejoice because even if his riches disappear, that shouldn't be where his confidence was anyway. So both are humbled and both are equally blessed before God in their humiliation. True humility accepts the poor and the rich. Either way, don't attach yourself too tightly to what you have and don't try to live your life trying to get what you can't. Because both instances take our eyes off of the Lord where they should be focused. To emphasize how anything and everything in this life is temporary, he gives an illustration at the verse at the end of verse 10. He says, all this earthly stuff is like flowering grass. And rich people, he's not talking about them spiritually here, but the rich people are going to lose it all. All this earthly stuff. He says, the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. Its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. What he's saying here, this is all very temporary stuff. If you don't lose it here, you're going to lose it when you leave. So don't get too consumed with it. It's going to distract you from relying on the Lord. Uh, most of you know that Julie and I are in the midst of uh, caring for elderly parents. And uh, one thing that I've noticed and one thing God has shown me very clearly is that uh, oftentimes giving people long life is really a very gracious thing that God does because he strips away all the things that have distracted us during life. All the pursuits we've had, all the things that we thought were important economically. I mean, when, when you're in your 90s, I've seen this with parents, all your friends are dead. You thought friendships on this earth were important? They're all dead. There's nothing left. And so what it, what it amounts to in the end is there's you and there's God. And he's very gracious, uh, really simplifying everything down to that point. And that's really what James is talking about here. You know, we really need this humility and to understand it's us and God. And as we go through our trials, Lord, what are you trying to teach me here? You know, really be humble that I don't have this all figured out. I need God's wisdom. Show me your wisdom, Lord. I'm begging you for wisdom so I can sort out these issues to, to find out what's good for me so I can move to maturity, right? And you can be glorified through the way I'm living. So there exists 
an almighty, all-wise, infinitely gracious and sovereign God who knows all about your trials. Of course, he knows about them. He sends them, right? Suffering is an evidence of the love of this God. He provides everything we need to get through these trials. Whenever life brings trials, we need to realize that uh, these are a result of his will. They're part of his plan. They're all ordered in number and weight and measure. There's no accidents going on here. There's no chance involved. There's no uh, random circumstances that are bringing about our trials. But this is all part of God's providential accomplishment for what he wants to do in our lives. And they are for our spiritual maturity and our Christ-likeness. And then also remember that your afflictions and my afflictions will never continue a moment longer than God has decided. And he who brings it to me will support me through it to victory so we can truly rejoice in our trials if we have a biblical view of them. In other words, if we're thinking rightly, as James says, right? So, we must rejoice in our trials because that's what God, through James, commands us to do. I hope you see that verse 12 is true here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. God wants to bless us through what he brings our way. So let's try to learn what he has for us so we can bring him glory, right? I'm going to stop there this morning. I hope some of this has been useful. We are all going to go through trials. Some of you are in the midst of severe trials right now. Just understand that uh, you're not alone. God has sent these. Let's use them as God has purposed. If you'll stand at this point, I'll dismiss us in prayer. Uh, by the way, if you want to um, watch Pastor Graff's uh, commencement ceremony tonight, it will be at 5 o'clock our time. Central, I guess we're in central daylight time now. And it'll be live streamed on the um, Shepherd's Theological Seminary Facebook page and website and also the Shepherd's Church website at 5 p.m. So you can watch and see how Pastor Graff holds up under this uh, very emotional event in his life. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this passage from James, and really we need to be thanking you also for the trials and sufferings you bring into our lives, because that truly is the road to maturity and completeness and being who you have intended for us to be and bringing you glory. And Lord, we get too distracted with the things of this world, and then we miss out on what you want to do in our lives. So forgive us for that and help us to view our trials differently and to address them biblically and to think rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.